So one of the big questions you can ask, and it's probably worth asking, is why do people do things that are against their good? Why do they make decisions that they know will have potential negative consequence? Why do organizations push in a direction where they know the outcome will be potentially bad? Hey, everybody, Todd Conklin, Breax Fan Investigation. How are you? Kind of out of breath. I ran in here to record this. Don't ask me why. That's crazy. But I did because, you know, it is the time of the year where everything is so incredibly busy. And I don't, I mean, I just can't figure out what the story is. But plus, I've just had a bunch of goofy stuff going on. But, you know, we're getting ready towards the end of the year and the holidays are coming. And I love all that. And you get to hang out with people and the food's great and candy. And I can only say hi comments towards that stuff that's that's the best but no it's just kind of crazy and 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 the weather even though i promise every time i think i'm not going to talk about the weather there has to be more interesting crap in your life than the weather but this is proof that i'm an old man because you know it's trying really hard to snow and uh, it's just you know it's winter so we have to get used to how are you though everything good Everything exciting? Are you getting ready towards the year's end? Do you have all the stuff you need to get done done? It's a fair question. I don't want to bring up anything bad, but, uh, you know, it's it's a reasonable question. It seems kind of crazy. Because ultimately, it's... I guess... I want to say it's an artificial deadline. I mean, time's weird. Dates are weird. Because they're, they're, they're constructs. They're made up. And so that it just seems like we have a lot of, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. I, I just in fact was reading something tonight where a person said one of the treats I've given myself is that I ask this question about everything that gives me stress. Will I care about it tomorrow? Will I care about it in a week? Will I care about it in a month? Will I care about it in a year? Will I care about it forever? And the person who wrote this said that's been the most freeing thing to just give them permission because most of the things that are super stressy in their lives is what they said are things that when they ask that question, there's almost always a no really quickly. Like I don't care about it tomorrow. I won't care about it next week. I won't care about it next month. That's actually a uh, kind of a nice way to exercise some uh, positive mental health step forward. And that's a big deal. There's no question about it. I think it's, it's a huge deal, and it's, it's a big part of what happens. But that sort of leads us to what we're going to talk about today. So we probably should get into that because, um, you know, we got stuff to do. It's a busy time, and we should be doing stuff. Okay, so there's this author named William Allen White. And if you uh, ever had to take an English class... And and they cared about grammar. One of the most important guidebooks to English grammar is, and it's kind of a style book. It's used a lot in journalism. is is a book by Strunk and White, and it's the same White, William Allen White, and he was a journalist, 
And now he's long gone. I mean, long gone. And he wrote an article at the turn of last century called What's the Matter with Kansas? And the article is really interesting because the premise is, is how can a group of people actually act in their own worst interest, knowingly act in their own worst interest? And it's a really interesting say. It's, a, it's pretty famous. Um, it's a social science article. So all of you engineers out there probably don't even know this guy exists, but he's quite famous. And that has always been a very interesting thing for me to think about. And I've always thought, to a great extent, organizations have the same potential and do the same things. And I'm not really certain why, although that's kind of why we're talking today, but I will tell you one of the great examples I'll give you, and, and tell me if this is not true, is organizations will push forward with some really contemporary thinking around things like safety or reliability or resilience. And they'll be out there kind of on the edge trying stuff out, doing learning teams and talking to their workforce and allowing people to sort of manage risk at their own levels, all those kind of things. And then something will happen because something always happens. Stuff happens all the time. I mean, I promise you, things that never happen happen all the time. And the safest organizations in the world still have accidents because they're accidents, right? We know all this. Something will happen, and bam, the organization will turn around and run right back to the old name, shame, blame, and retrain model. They'll go right back to behavioral observations. They'll go right back to disciplinary actions. They'll go right back to mandatory days without pay because of a, of a, of a safety accident, an event, a, a mistake, an error. And I always think, well, how does that happen? Because the th question I want to ask, and it's kind of a reasonable question, is, is it wasn't that great for you 20 years ago. I mean, it didn't give you better results 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Why now, after something bad happens, do you move backwards towards this old way, which is clearly against your own best interest as an organization. Because anything we can do to increase engagement and really increase ownership and keep the conversation of risk alive is what makes companies safe. I mean, we all know that. That's not a mystery, and there's tons of data to prove that. That, I think, becomes a really interesting part of the conversation. And so I was looking around. I'm always kind of looking around for stuff. And I found what I think is a very interesting study. Is, is this a study? I mean, I get, so I don't know, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how to credit this because it's, it, it comes from this online presence called OK Boomer, which is not something I read very often. I mean, because, you know, uh, it's a little too, close to home, but they did a very interesting discussion, kind of a white paper almost. I would say the beginning underpinnings of a pretty good research project on why people take actions against their best interests. And, and I started looking at it and I started thinking, you know, this has a lot of practical application for us organizationally. So you can think about the organization in which you work and apply these 
principles, these ideas, I wouldn't call them principles, these are observations, apply these observations. But I also think it has a lot to do with the way people see and manage risk. And so I think there's there's much to it. And there's there's really nine or ten of them. And I could be more precise, but we'll see. One of them is a little iffy, but nonetheless. And I thought this would be a good chance to sort of introduce these ideas because I think they, they make a big difference. So why is it that organizations aren't boldly moving into these new ideas because they're better? And that's what these nine or ten things absolutely discuss and and that so that's what i wanted to talk about with you today that, that's that's the topic for today i have a bunch of other super cool stuff to share with you on the pod next year's gonna be amazing just be ready but this one seems like the right thing to share and the right thing to talk about towards the end of the year because it's thoughtful and it'll be kind of uh, it's an action learning activity because It'll definitely make you think about things, and, and, and that's kind of our goal. So number one, the, the first reason that organizations sort of move against their best interest is because individual people within those organizations never really take invisible threats seriously. So let's talk about that a little bit. If you can't see it, then it's not there. And so threats that are, are not visible, that, that aren't apparent, that aren't readily recognizable and it's some kind of hazard identification activity, those threats aren't really threats, even though we know that there are lots of risks in the world that we can't see but still exist. And, and one of the reasons why that's true is that just as, as human beings, we're really biologically wired for clear and present danger. I mean, we're really good at obvious, clear, and present danger. I like using that because it's a movie title, kind of. I mean, it's, it makes me sound really smart. The problem is, is if we don't sense that clear and present danger, we've got such a big brain as a human being that we don't really take that threat seriously. And so you can make a pretty good case that deterrence is a problem because we don't actually see deterrence happening. The fear of something bad happening is not nearly as immediately available as seeing the bad thing happen. And so that becomes really the first reason why organizations don't look at threats in total. Number two, everybody, and I mean everybody, all of us, certainly you, me, us, everyone thinks the bad thing won't happen to me. The bad thing won't happen to my organization. This will not happen. And that's a crazy part of this, this bias towards optimism. And, and I actually think the bias towards optimism is relatively important. It's the reason you can get out of bed in the morning. Because if you didn't believe today's going to be better, uh, the urge to get up would probably be 
not very strong. I mean, you'd probably just be kind of hanging out waiting for it. And so we look at odds. We'll play odds. And we'll look at them and we'll think, okay, the, it's a million to one odd. That, that's, that's pretty good odds, right? And I won't be that millionth person. So we have a bias towards this, the, the belief that the bad thing won't happen to me. And so we're sort of unreasonably optimistic about the future. And so, of course, putting lots of time, energy, and effort, resources, money, emotion into creating controls for events that never happen is a pretty hard to sell because the event's not going to happen and it probably won't happen to us. And that's all pretty true. But because we think it won't happen to us, it won't happen to our organization, it won't happen to me, we have this really strong need to not recognize potential hazards, potential dangers for the organization, and to boldly just think that outcome is impossible. It's one of the things we've dealt with a lot as we talk about uncertainty. The pandemic sort of put us in that position. Like none of us counted on the fact we'd be alive during a pandemic. I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy talk, right? And because we had to sort of really boldly deal with uncertainty, we had to learn that uncertain outcomes are managed with certain controls. But to do that, you have to believe the uncertain outcome is probable. It will happen. And so you move from if, which is how we manage risk forever, to when, which is a much healthier, much more effective way to build capacity for variation in the world, which takes us to three. People get high off ignoring danger. It, there's, a, there's a rush to it. It feels good to blow off warnings. It feels good if it says, do not cross this line to cross that line. It, it delivers a little dump of happiness. Maybe a better thing to say would be a dump of, of dopamine. And so what happens is people are, are motivated by risk-taking. It's the reason bungee jump existing. I'm talking to you, Kiwis. Or people parachute. Or walk on high wires, you know, or they, they do that stuff because a part of the excitement is the risk. And so that also reflects organizationally that we'll be bold enough. We're scrappy. We're a scrappy company. We'll take that risk because if it pays off, it'll pay off high. The fourth one, it's not popular, nor is it desired to tell people bad things can happen. Uh, it's the old, people want to shoot the messenger. It's the classic issue when a safety person walks out to the production floor and everybody says, fox in the hen house, here comes safety. You know, if you want to do it right, do it at night. All those things are directly tied to the fact that it, it's, it's not popular to say this can fail and if it fails, this could have significant consequence you need to do this, you need to build scaffolding, or you need to bring in the right equipment. You need to do that's not very popular. So when we deliver bad news, we tend to get kind of punished. And this is really true organizationally. Now it's not going to look like punishment punishment. Like you're not going to get SWATs or expelled or sent home. But there's a lot of perception of punishment. And remember if I perceive it as punishment, it's punishment. 
right? And because of that punishment, because we don't want to hear what the person has to say, they're often demonized as the bearer of bad news. And that actually, that makes people kind of unlikable. And nobody wants to be unlikable. We all want to be liked. I mean, that's the reason we do all the stuff we do is hope people like us. So that fourth idea, people don't like the people who bring the bad news, that's pretty hardwired, again, in human condition. And there's been a long eons of years of history of that problem. Which takes us to the fifth one. And the fifth one's really interesting to me because we talk about this all the time. And that is people trust their hunch. They trust their instinct. They trust their gut. And they probably do that too much. So Danny Kahneman, if you've read Thinking Fast or Slow, and probably lots of you have, he talks about the difference between thinking slow, which is a systemic understanding, you know, a a full analysis, uh, looking at the situation deeply and profoundly and understanding the context of the event and thinking fast, which is that gut-level reaction, and that we are sort of born with these two ideas. One of the challenges is, and even Kahneman talks about this, and and it's worth talking about, is that those gut-level decisions are mostly right, and we can talk about why that is, But generally, it's based upon other experiences where you probably have done the analysis, light condition versus light condition. And so you can jump into the second condition much quicker because you've done the work on the first condition, right? Fair enough. But we know that there's an over-reliance of that gut-level instinct. And when it works, the payoff is more gut-level decisions. And when it fails, it tends to fail catastrophically, like lose all your money or lose your house or something bad will happen. That's kind of a part of of how that change happens. The sixth way organizations move away from their own self-interest is that ultimately, and this one could not be more true, ultimately, as human beings, we want to forget collective trauma. We want to forget what's happened that's been bad. In fact, I would suggest, again, we're biologically designed, optimism bias, uh, sort of a, the, the gut-level instinct, the, the belief that tomorrow will be better. We're biologically designed so that we do forget collective trauma. And, and I'm not sure any of these in and of themselves are bad. I, I don't know if we're ready to have the bad and good conversation But I can tell you an organization forgets soon a bad thing that happens because we go back to the rhythm of our work. We go back to the rhythm of what we do. We go back to the rhythm of our lives. And we probably need to be beyond that event because you can't live in that tragedy, that trauma. But ultimately, and this is really the key, Forgetting about that collective trauma puts us in a position where we're almost destined for history to repeat itself. Not action by action, 
accident by accident, event by event. But in fact, we're pretty good at sort of forgetting the bad outcome, the collective trauma that we had a couple years ago, and finding ourselves back in some kind of collective trauma again. The seventh one is amazing. Organizations tend to move against their best interests because people within those organizations can adjust to almost anything. I've told you one of the most interesting things I've ever seen is the statement, our people will run any piece of a crap equipment we give them. And then when you turn the T-shirt over, the backside said, and they get good at it. It's really interesting because we do have the ability to normalize. Normalize for deviation, normalize for pain, normalize for discomfort. People are amazing. They're incredibly resilient. And they can adjust to almost anything. And what's really interesting, if you think about it, each new generation of workers accepts the current situation in the organization as normal without ever really asking the question, well, what used to be normal? We basically will accept, accept something awful because we don't know any better. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's pretty remarkable when you think about it. And that habituation, that, that normalization of deviance, these are all terms we talk about all the time. That's actually a pretty important component of organizational culture and of individual beingness, which takes me to the eighth one. Because we only know the normal we know, we defend the normal as aggressively as we can. So change scares the crap out of organizations. It just does. Even though I would suggest we change all the time, the resistance towards change is significant. It's, it's a big part of the discussion. And change even for the, for the good can be painful and scary. So don't just think I'm talking about change for the better or for the worse. And so when change happens, we're, we're really aggressively defending normal. And you know where I see it is when they change apps, like some app you use, like, I don't know, an airline app or, uh, uh, you know, Amazon, whatever. It, if they change the app, you have to relearn the app, which is just frustrating as crap. And they're changing something that you finally sort of figured out how to use. You normalize to it because we'll operate any piece of crap they give us and get good at it. And then when the change happens, oh, no, that change is so scary. Even if the app becomes better, even if the change is for the good, we're going to desperately and sometimes pretty aggressively defend normal. We defend what we think was normal. And we do that because the fear of change is so strong. Which takes me to the ninth one. And that is the idea that most people just want to fit in. They don't want a lot of additional attention. They don't want to be the squeaky wheel. 
They don't want to be singled out. They just want to be liked, accepted, loved, and fit in. And this desire for social acceptance, which is incredibly important, oftentimes overrides our survival instincts, our better instincts. It's a powerful force. It's the reason a a co-pilot won't speak up in the cockpit. Or it's the reason bad news is not delivered to the boss. It's the reason that everybody knew this was going to fail, but nobody said a word. Because that need for social acceptance was really, really strong and really valuable. Those are nine ideas that directly talk about how organizations see the way they manage the benefit for them to grow and improve. And remember, improvement is a deliberate strategy. It's a really important part of how we survive. And these naturally occurring phenomena, these nine things, they're worth thinking about. So that's what we did. What do you say? Pretty interesting, isn't it? I thought you'd like this. I mean, it's just thoughtful. I don't know what to tell us to do with it. I mean, I'm going to need a little more time to process it. Um, you could tell that I'm in, I'm in the midst of uh, thinking about things um, because we have a little Project X going on. So there's much discussion around these things. But I, I always find this to be incredibly interesting. And these nine things, I think, are, are they're worth spending time walking the dog or riding your bike or driving to work listening to because these are pre- this is a pretty interesting observation. And really powerful, uh, kind of freaky powerful. But that's kind of how it goes. I mean, that's that's what happens. That is the pod for today. Hey, I want you to have a, a most excellent week next week. Just, you know, take a moment and ask, will I care about this tomorrow? Will I care about it next week? Will I care about it next month? Just think about it. Because you're a human being, so you're biased towards optimism. You hate change. You'll justify normal. We know all these things. They're all a part of the story. That is the pod. Learn something new every single day. Bet you did today. Today's kind of a good day. Be kind to each other. Be good to each other. Take care of each other. Check in on one another. Have as much fun as you possibly can. And for goodness sakes, you guys, for goodness sakes, be safe. (laughs) 